the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Briggs. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Chief Warrant Officer Mike Lacroix, CD. I served for a year and a half with no payday. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Briggs. I'm just going to look in to see if there's any feedback this week. I don't see any feedback on the website. Looking at iTunes, there's no feedback for this week. But I noticed through the Amazon link, remembering that a small portion of any purchases that you do at Amazon go to help support the show. And you can find the link at www.CanadianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.ca. Well, people out there have bought a few things. It looks like we've got a Shrunk's Toddler Travel Bed with an electric pump, a Cyclops Stackable Climbing Block for Indoor Bicycle Trainers, a Ruffle Wear Flat Out Leash for Pets, Minecraft the Annual 2014, a 14104 Sidewinder Combat Tactical Flashlight with four LEDs and a lithium battery. And it looks like here we have a Charles Hubert Paris gold-plated satin finish mechanical pocket watch. Probably a great item for wearing with your mess dress if you're out in official functions. There's a lot of stuff on here. Today's guest, Chief Warrant Officer Michael Lacroix, listed in the Army in 1988 as a private in the Toronto Scottish Regiment. He completed his basic infantry reconnaissance, machine gunner, and section commander's course early in his career as an infantry soldier. From there, Chief Warrant Officer Lacroix became a full-time Army recruiter after I left the position that he took over from me. Chief Warrant Officer Lacroix was promoted to Warrant Officer, became a company sergeant major in Alpha Company of the Toronto Scottish Regiment. From there, Sergeant Major Lacroix moved through the ranks effectively and swiftly. Mike has fulfilled many appointments in the Toronto Scottish Regiment, all the way up to where he currently sits as the Sergeant Major of 32 Brigade. Sergeant Major Lacroix and myself have had a long friendship prior to being soldiers together in the Toronto Scottish. We grew up together in Mississauga, and finally both of us came to a point where our careers or our paths brought us towards the Canadian Armed Forces. Mike joined the Army first, and being the guy that he was, brought me along and got me to join the organization, the Toronto Scottish. He's a stickler for the things that need to be done right. He's always about having a good time. And he's not afraid to tell you when something's not right and it needs to be fixed. And our very first leadership course that pretty much counts for it all, your infantry section commander's course, we did together. We shared the same room. We polished the same floors, we cleaned the same bathrooms, and we made sure that we made roll call at the same time on every single night, on the very few nights where you got to leave pass. Here's my interview with Chief Warrant Officer Mike Lacroix. Chief Warrant Officer Lacroix, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here. You and I first met a long time ago at the Toronto Scottish Regiment at Fort York Armouries. Do you remember? Greg, I think you're mistaken. I'm going to have to call you on that. Because you and I first met in the first Cooksville Scouts in Ventures. And we hiked the mountains in New Mexico side by side with each other. We were young scouts, actually in the Venture program. And we traveled through New Mexico with nothing but what we could carry on our backs. 
we watched jet fighters of the U.S. Air Force pass under us because we were so high in the mountains. We had our friend James Robertson, our friend Damian Keelan was there, Roger Stedman was with us, and so many other of our scout friends. Yes. And I think I needed your help one day when I decided to go free climbing, and I couldn't remember how to unfree climb. Yes, I know that you bring that to my attention. I guess in in our older days, we tend to forget some things, but I do recall a certain opportunity where you uh, took the opportunity to climb up nice and high so you could get an even better view and you got yourself up into that little hole that we're referring to in our memory right now and you had a little bit of an issue with the the getting down. I do recall that now. We worked it through, but we got you down. It was just one of those things where we just had to make sure we did it so that we didn't have any injuries. I do recall. Yeah. And I think that little hole was a chimney in mountaineering terms. Yeah. You'd worked yourself right up to the top and it was a perfect opportunity to see way bit more things than what we were seeing on the ground. And you worked your way up and got right up there. And you probably had a fantastic view while you were up there until the point where you had to come back down. You know who would have been great to have with us that day? I can think of a few. Our section commander from our infantry section commander's course, because Carl DeRoche wrote the navigation section of the Mountain Warfare PAM. Yes, he did. He did indeed write that. And he was very proud to let us know in no uncertain terms on many occasions that he had done that. I do remember that. Yeah, so he would have been a great help in navigating off that. Is it a Mesa? Uh, a mesa is a little bit bigger and a little bit, a little bit smoother, but it'll come to me. It's up there. It'll come to me. Have you had a chance to review the questions? I've been looking at the questions for quite a long time. Right on. Well, and I'm sure you've probably heard a few other people on the podcast and you've had a chance to think about what you may or may not like to answer for the question. So let's start right in with the first question. Why did you join the Canadian Armed Forces? Well, the year before I joined in 1987, you and I were hiking through the mountains of New Mexico with nothing but what we could carry on our backs. Pretty rugged experience. I feel that I was and I still am an experienced camper, more advanced level. Although now I tend to use a 28-foot travel trailer rather than a tiny backpack tent, but nevertheless, when our friends, uh, there were three of them, it was Sean Krug, Kevin Tripp, and Peter Mould, they all decided to join the Army and they went down to find the Army Reserve. I ended up being essentially just one step behind them. I I was along for the ride, but I wasn't really with them on their first time, but I caught up very quickly. And we were trying to think about all the different infantry units in the Toronto area. I kind of was interested in the Royal Regiment of Canada to start, and I was kind of worried about wearing a kilt, which was a new experience for me. I was kind of impressed by the bearskin and scarlet jackets that were worn ceremonially by the Royal Regiment of Canada. And this is a little bit of a secret identity moment here for people that actually know me. And my friend said, no, 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 we're going to go and we're going to we're gonna go to the Toronto Scottish because chicks love the kilts, man. You got to have a kilt because it drives the women crazy. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm like, all right, if that's the persuasion I need, then that's where we're going to go. And we all signed up with the Toronto Scottish and no regrets, no looking back. Ironically enough, my initial paperwork ended up at the Royal Regiment of Canada and they were about to fire me because I never showed up for work. Meanwhile, I'd been parading with the Toronto Scottish, but my enrollment paperwork ended up by mistake to the Royal Regiment of Canada. So that's quite a little piece of irony. Yeah, when I think about it, really sometimes isn't a bit of a shocker. Back then, the administration of uh, administering to troops sometimes wasn't the best that it possibly could be. Well, I didn't get paid for the first 18 months of my service. 
because my paperwork was over at the Royal Regiment of Canada and nobody knew how to find everything or what the problem was with my paperwork, I served for a year and a half with no payday. And everybody kept saying, well, don't worry, you'll get it. It'll be in a big lump sum. It'll be a big surprise or it'll be here next week. And I remember those pay cards, they were all entered in by pencil. They were entered by hand. I did an audit of my pay for my reserve pension recently and I realized that I only got entered as attendance for my entire recruit basic training for three weekends. So when my pay did eventually get caught up, I did my entire recruit basic training course on three weekends of pay when they did eventually pay me after the 18 months. And it wasn't a lump sum either. It was in small little drips and drabs. And the pay system is much improved now in the Army Reserve. We don't have that same pencil system that we had back in the day. But nevertheless, we do get a regular payday and it is direct deposit. So a great improvement. And it didn't really hurt me to suffer that. <laughs> I, I stayed. Most people would have quit after maybe six months of not being paid. But I stuck it out for 18 months without being paid. So that's yeah, you're definitely not the first and in that time period, you probably weren't the last because I myself suffered from a few of those moments where paperwork didn't get to its end state or didn't get finalized or finished. And I can remember myself while being away at university, not getting paid for an extended period of time and actually needing that money fairly significantly while I was away at university and that money not coming. So I can definitely sympathize with you and understand exactly uh, where you're coming from in that regard. Yeah. So what was the world like when you joined? Well, that's quite interesting. We were still in the Cold War, and that's the a lot of guests on the show have been answering it. We've been in, we were in the Cold War, but there was something else that was going on in the social consciousness of North America, let's call it. We had a movie like Platoon that came out in 1986 and it won the Academy Award. And then we had TV shows on like Magnum P.I. And what, why am I drawing a parallel with my service in these shows? Because there was a bit of remorse for the way that the Vietnam veteran had been treated. Those shows or those movies like Platoon and like Magnum P.I. brought that Vietnam veteran and brought it into the social conscience I think, and I don't have any scientific data, this is just my own perception, I think that social conscience is what drove a lot of the Support the Truth initiatives that we see, those grassroots Support the Truths, the Red on Friday campaign, the Yellow Ribbon campaign, Wounded Warriors, things of that nature, that whole social consciousness of the treatment of veterans, I believe came from those type of shows that really brought shame to the way that those Vietnam veterans were treated when they came home. That's just my own examination of when I when I started. Yeah, minivans were a brand new invention. We had the space shuttle flying still quite regularly. Cell phones were pretty much non-existent. Internet didn't have it. The unit, the Toronto Scottish, didn't even have a computer inside the line, the unit lines. We still had teletype in the armory. We had a teletype machine and things would be teletyped down in the basement of Fort York Armories. And that's where you would get your Can4 gens and things of that nature that would be distributed via teletype. The fax machine was a relatively new invention and just completely different. The one thing that I do appreciate when I speak to people like Honorary Colonel Jeffrey Dorfman or even some of my predecessors, Honorary Colonel Jeffrey Dorfman was Brigade Sergeant Major back when it was the Toronto Militia District. Also, Captain Dan Joyce, he was he was the first Brigade Sergeant Major, but he was also District Sergeant Major. He's the Sergeant Major that bridged the gap. I really wonder how they function, how they did their job without something as simple as an Excel spreadsheet 
or something we take for granted like email or something like a PowerPoint presentation. And they didn't have any access to that. I remember as a young instructor, I never had really good penmanship, but I remember as a young instructor, we had to do all of our overhead sheets with colored magic markers, handwritten, printed in perfect detail. You weren't allowed to have any flaws in your spelling. Your lines had to be crisp. Everything had to be perfect and every slide. So if you can imagine, it's two o'clock in the morning and you're teaching the next day. And instead of sitting there with a laptop creating a PowerPoint or reviewing the PowerPoint that Standards has prepared for you, we would be going through with our magic markers on clear sheets. And I don't know how many clear sheets of plastic we went through to do our overhead. I definitely can remember that and I can sympathize with you and how many times you would You'd look at it and you'd think at 1.30 in the morning, oh, that's perfect. And you'd read it one more time and you'd realize that you'd put an I before an E or an E before an I in one word. And you thought, oh, my God, I have to do that entire sheet all over again. Yeah. Or you'd have to remember when you're changing your slides, you have to turn off the overhead projector, take your slide off, put your new slide on, right side up, and then turn on the overhead projector. So it was like magic. And actually, Mike, now that you say that, at my current employer, we were talking about teaching techniques. And I was on a course where I was taking a teaching techniques course. And the instructor asked if anybody had any other techniques for presenting classrooms and lectures. And I actually ventured down the path of history and mentioned the fact that there was actually a technique for using an overhead projector and I had a number of individuals that were very young and didn't have a lot of experience in the room And when I mentioned the whole turn it off change the slide make sure it was perfectly lined up right side up turn it on and carry on with the slide I basically had a lot of people looking at me like I was speaking Swahili or some foreign language so <laughs> definitely back in the day we did some things that nobody would really remember in this point in time that's for sure yeah our weapon system was the FNC1, A1, with the Arctic Trigger Guard. We had the C2, and I remember every time you were issued a C2, the section commander would always come over and steal your 30-round magazines and give you his 20-round magazines, which I always thought was silly, but whatever. And then we had the C5 GPMG, completely different weapon systems. If you were really lucky, you got the submachine gun, the 9mm Sterling submachine gun. But typically, you would get a surprise because the Sterling submachine gun typically came with a 10-pound radio and spare batteries that you had to carry along with it. So you got a benefit of having the light machine gun, but you had the penalty of carrying the 2.5 set, I believe we called it. That thing was impressive if you wanted to listen to the Toronto Maple Leafs lose the Stanley Cup to Wayne Gretzky while you're sitting in the trench. That It would pick up the CBC. You could listen to All in the Family and MASH and things of that nature. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. So what were you like when you joined? You've gotten into what the world was like, and you've talked a little bit about the Canadian Forces. What were you like when you joined? All right. When I joined the Canadian Forces, I had two things going for me. One, I was capable of living outdoors because I was an experienced camper. And two, I already came preloaded with the Army haircut. I struggled through several different hairstyles as a teenager, finally settling on the one that I currently have and I've had since I was 17 years old. Well, there was a brief period where my wife tried to change my hairstyle. That lasted about three weeks, and then I gave up. Those were the only two things that I had going for me. Oh, and when I was in cadets, I knew a little bit of drill. 
But I can tell you that I was not the model private by any stretch of the imagination. And my former Sergeant Major, James Smith, who I believe listens to the show, will be able to attest to to some of my flaws and faux pas and the additional grooming I required to become uh, soldierly. You know that soldier who doesn't know his left from right? That was me. I didn't know left from right. And I never felt it was important to know it. I just never bothered to learn it, never bothered to pay attention. And then suddenly I get to an organization where everything is done by the left and by the right. Now I'm playing catch up. I still catch myself when I'm in front of a formation and I'm ordering a left turn. I still catch myself looking for the flag on the uniform so that I know which way left is on the soldiers' bodies. And I don't know if other drill instructors use that trick, but the rifle's in the right hand and the flag's on the left shoulder. When I want to order a left turn, I always look for that flag so that I know I'm orienting the parade in the right direction. Mistakes, blunders, all kinds of things. But they're all learning blunders. And what I had the benefit of was a patient cadre of teachers, people like Drew Gilmore, people like Craig Matsky, people like Victor Cheney, who I don't know if they saw any talent in this clumsy kid, but but at least they had the patience to point me in the right direction and at least get me to where I needed to be. And I'm always appreciative of those instructors that I had when I was developing and learning. Something else when I joined, I was an apprentice chef. Well, I'll clarify that in a quick second, but I was an apprentice chef at the Delta Meadowvale Inn. And when I say apprentice, it wasn't that I had apprenticeship papers. It was that I was in the role leading up to where I would eventually earn my apprenticeship papers. I was working at the Delta Meadowvale Inn with my friend Sean Krug, who also joined the Army at the same time as I did, and who was also on that New Mexico trip with you and I. Well, I made a lot of mistakes as an employee in the Delta Meadowville and kind of showing up late, wasting product uh, by making a mistake and spoiling an entire batch. But I learned a lot of impressive stuff about fine cooking, and I I really retained a lot of that skill and ability. But when I was at Fort York Armory on my recruit basic training, Captain Murgosi at the time, I think he's a major now, amazing artist, Major Murgosi. If ever you've seen any of his work, very impressive. He's with the Royal Regiment of Canada, or he was with the Royal Regiment of Canada. He does those scrolls. You know, when you have a parade, the two COs sit down at the table and they sign the scroll when they do their handover. The ceremonial ones where... Yeah, he, he does those by hand. And they're flawless. It's incredible. But anyhow, he calls me into his office and he says, okay, uh, private, here's the deal. You've missed two recruit basic training weekends. Uh, You can't miss any more. Otherwise, you're going to have to redo the course. This is your last warning. So I said to him, well, you know, I have I have another job. I'm working at the Delta Meadowvale Inn. Sometimes I can't get weekends off. He said, well, I'll let you work that out with your employer. And hopefully your employer can understand and give you some of the time off that you need. So I went back to the Delta Meadowvale Inn. Now, we used to have a very great chef in the Delta Meadowvale Inn. We had Chef Mario Ramsey. And it's not Chef Ramsey from TV. It's a different cat altogether. And he was a great mentor and a great teacher. And then we had a new chef that came in. I went in to see the chef and I I walked up to his office and I said to him, Chef, uh, I need to talk to you about this weekend I'm scheduled for. He said, well, what about it? said, well, I need that weekend off because I'm on recruit basic training with the Army. If I don't have that weekend off, I'm going to fail the course. He says, well, you have to choose. Do you want to be a chef or do you want to be in the army? So I'm like, okay. So I walked out and I decided right there that, yeah, 
I was going to walk away from my potential apprenticeship, which would have been coming within the next, I don't know, six to nine months. But I walked away from that and I handed in essentially my resignation and walked away from the Delta Meadowvale. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I ever looked back on that as a negative experience. I think that was a step in the right direction. It, it ended up proving to be the right choice in the long run. But it was an interesting contrast because today we have employer support programs like the Canadian Forces Liaison Council. CFLC, who will approach employers and explain to them the benefits of having reservists working for them and how the courses that a reservist can take can have benefits in the civilian workplace. And I know my current employer, York Regional Police, takes, I don't want to say takes advantage of that, but they apply that. They apply that effectively where they'll use some of the military skill sets that come with being in the Army Reserve and apply that effectively to the organization of York Regional Police. And it does pay off. What was the question again? You basically got going along. (laughs) But I think you actually may be selling yourself a bit short. The question basically said, what were you like when you joined? And you said that you came preloaded with a couple of assets. The fact that you had the haircut. And the fact that you were an outdoors kind of guy that you'd spend a lot of time, you could survive outdoors. But I think if you think back about it, and I'm pretty sure that you can parler français. Yeah. So if you really think about it, and we didn't back in those days because we were young soldiers and all we thought about was soldiering, but you came preloaded with the other primary language, the Canadian Armed Forces, which probably set you up later in your career. But I'm going to probably bet that at that point in time, it wasn't one of the things that we thought about. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it slips my mind. My mother would be ashamed of me for forgetting my French-Canadian heritage once again. (laughs) I'm sure she'll forgive you. I'm sure she'll forgive you. What is your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces? All right, I'm going to tell you, this this is going to be long, but that's okay. Absolutely. My most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces is my first year as a sergeant. It was nonstop. I was firing on all cylinders. Things were happening like magic. I took over the recruiting office from you, and I don't want to say anything about your handover being anything but above standard, but you and I both realize that you took over a very dysfunctional office from your predecessor. And what you did in the office was essentially pull it out of the sinkhole that it was in when you took over, at the recruiting office, that is. And then when I took over the recruiting office... Let's just call it that you put it on an even keel, and I had to fly it from there. That's fair. As soon as I became promoted to the rank of sergeant, one of the very first things that happened, I came out of the junior ranks mess as president of the mess committee. So I came out as a master corporal, senior master corporal, president of the mess committee, and I came into the warrant officers and sergeants mess of the Toronto Scottish. It was just about unanimous that I would be made the president of the mess committee of the sergeants mess until somebody looked in the constitution that you actually had to do a year of service in the mess before you could hold the appointment of president. So everyone unanimously made me the vice PMC, and I did both, essentially both roles, because our PMC was, was reluctant in the role, but still happy to move the program ahead. It looks like we've run out of time. Please stay tuned and come back to hear the remainder of the interview with Chief Warrant Officer Lacroix. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroix, cmhp, 
at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.